Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Mansos on the Boulevard, we're Out to Lunch with Stephanie Regal. It's business Baton Rouge style. Hi, I'm Stephanie Regal. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Two-thirds of the planet is covered with water, and in South Louisiana, it may often seem like a lot more than that. We are surrounded by lakes and bayous, bisected by one of the largest rivers in the world, and sloughing off a football field of land every 30 minutes into the massive Gulf of Mexico that makes up our South Coast. We are so vulnerable to the power of all this water, and also so dependent on it, and yet we love the water rely on it not just for sustenance, but recreation, and even pay companies to dig pools of water in our backyards so we can swim, sunbathe, and entertain. Unsurprisingly, Louisiana businesses and institutions have become experts in water, how to contain it, control it, and have fun with it. With me today to discuss this is Alyssa Dawsman, Senior Vice President and Chief Scientist at the Water Institute of the Gulf an independent nonprofit applied research institution that was created right here in Baton Rouge a little over a decade ago to advance science and develop integrated methods to solve complex environmental and societal challenges around coastal and climate related issues. Alyssa has more than 20 years experience working in hydrology and science to support decision making. She currently leads strategic planning efforts for the Governor's Climate Task Force, as well as for the Capital Area Groundwater Conservation Commission. In addition, she's working with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers on developing and implementing strategic planning for research and development. She's an expert on issues related specifically to the Gulf of Mexico and has been published and lectured all over the world. Alyssa, it is a pleasure to have you here on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking with you guys today. Joining me and Alyssa is Parker Ewing, owner of Ewing Aquatech Pools, a Baton Rouge-based swimming pool contractor that has been in business since 1966 and has designed and built more than 6,000 swimming pools and hot tubs for customers throughout Louisiana and Mississippi. Parker's father started the business in Alexandria Parker joined the company in 1991 after graduating from the University of Alabama, where he majored in political science and Russian, an interesting combination. I think Parker said he uses his Russian about every day in the swimming pool business. <laughs> Parker, thanks so much for joining us and for being here on Out to Lunch. Thank you for having me. Well, Alyssa, I want to start with you because I think a lot of people don't really know what the Water Institute of the Gulf or TWIG is the acronym. See those pretty buildings down by the river, but mm -hmm. is it a research park? Is it a scientific thing? I mean, a, a little bit of everything? Um, no, that's an excellent question. So a lot of times people get confused um, with the Water Institute and the Water Campus. So the Water Campus is a place that has pulled together like the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, um, LSU has a building there, um, and the Water Institute is um, is uh, homed um, in one of the buildings on the water campus that that overlooks uh, overlooks the river, and so the Water Institute as an applied nonprofit research institute, we like to think of ourselves is um, really in a niche between 
where uh, integrated science uh, supports decision making. So really working with people who are trying to make tough decisions, and that can be that could be governments, that could be other nonprofits and foundations, right? Um, it could be uh, private companies, and we work with with all of those. In we have a series of scientists at the Institute, everything from engineers to social scientists, um, to coastal ecologists, to geologists, uh, that, that work together on integrated uh, problems that can be implemented. We do policy research, so we have a planning and policy research group um, where we're not advocating for anything to happen, but we're trying to pull together all the information such as it can be presented in a way that can uh, decision makers can make those based on sound science. And uh, we really like to work collaboratively. So we work with a lot of universities and others to pull those together and that research, uh, research together um, uh, for those decision makers. And so um, I, I think that can give you a little bit of a, a, a good description of, of what we do, but our, our, our goal is, uh, is to really get science into decision-making in a, in a way that a decision-maker can take something and say, oh, that makes perfect sense. I know exactly what you're trying to give me. And of course, that's, that makes so much sense given that Louisiana, like I said in the introduction, is so surrounded by water. I mean, this is an issue we really have to get our heads around. And, and yet, I mean, because of our climate and our ever-changing climate, swimming pools are, um, <laughs> are right. booming right now. And especially during this pandemic over the past two years, even in my humble little neighborhood, people were digging pools like nothing I'd ever seen. Parker, this is a good time to be a pool contractor, yes? Uh, it is. There are a lot of challenges um, that we've never seen before. Um, you know, materials are harder to get. Uh, chemicals are harder to get. Um, employees and, and just everything is a little bit more challenging right now. But at the end of the day, um, I always tell everyone I'm happy to be busy and it could be a whole lot different. And so you have to step back and take a percent, you know, the, the big picture and say, I'm really busy. I've got a lot of work. So I'll take I'll take that over the phone not ringing any day. So was it really did it really pick up um, when people were stuck in their homes in the you know spring of 2020 and said I can do something with this yard? It it, it, it did. Um, it, there was an explosion. You know when it first happened, you know we're thinking, gosh, we need to cut back. We we may not have any business here. This this is a once in a lifetime event. But I, I'll tell you, I'm going to write a book one day on the psychology of home purchasing because or purchasing at home because I think w when society turns inward like it did people look in their backyards and they're like you know what I'm gonna we're gonna make this our castle we're gonna make this our vacation home and I can't tell you how many people's uh, motive at the end of the day was that um, so I saw it a little bit after 9-11 believe it or not mm. um, I saw it a little bit when after the Katrina stuff. So um, it's just that when things get crazy, people look to um, retreat to their castle. That is so interesting. And I love you you citing Katrina and 9-11 as sort of, you know, milestone moments because you've been in the business a while. So, so I want you to um, think about how things have changed, you know, since then. But in the meantime, Alyssa, tell me a little bit about in, in its 10 or so years, I mean, what are some of the, and just a couple of the major accomplishments or studies um, or, you know, work 
products of the Water Institute that you can point to, that you can say, look what we've done that has made a difference? So the Water Institute um, is a, um, a significant role in working with the, the Coastal um, Protection and Restoration Authority on the Coastal Master Plan. Um, we work with them in detail on the numerical modeling that supports that called the Integrated Compartmental Model. Um, and as well as uh, we do a tremendous amount of integrated modeling for the state um, related to the diversion program. Um, I think that some of the other like larger accomplishments that we're really starting to progress into is, is um, uh, working on the Climate Initiatives Task Force. Uh, we've done a draft plan, uh, the final plan will hopefully, uh, we're down to the wire, uh, be released uh, within the next couple of months. Um, and we've really been able to expand into what we call uh, structured decision making and science to support decision making in a way um, and we've branched out in the Baton Rouge area to work with the groundwater problems um, and uh, related to the Southern Hills Aquifer uh, system. And it's not that dissimilar from like, it's funny um, talking about Parker and pools, because one of the examples that we bring up when we talk about um, water, for example, and water use and water rates and filling up swimming pools is that, um, for example, the, the structure, the right structure around uh, water in people's homes is that as you use more water, the actual uh, price per gallon goes down, um, which doesn't necessarily incentivize conservation, if you think about it. And so somebody always, what one of the commissioners is like, well, if I fill up my swimming pool, the price per gallon goes down, but should the price per gallon be the same or should it go up? So it was interesting when we were talking about swimming pools because we actually use that as an example when we're talking about water conservation um, and in uh, the Southern Hills Aquifer. And so I think that one of the accomplishments like you were talking about, Stephanie, is um, being able to really help our, our community, our greater community, to ensure we have a sustainable water resource over the long term for both industry and um, and home users. Mm -hmm. And that is so, so important here. And Baton Rouge has a really great source of, yeah. of fresh water. So hopefully we can come to something on that. Um, yeah. Parker, is it is it the case when people dig a pool in their backyard? I mean, does their water bill change? Well, um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, sure, it, it will, because I would say an average pool is probably 15 to 17,000 gallons to fill up. So when we wow. fill up a pool, that usually takes, believe it or not, we just fill it up with a garden hose because the, the plaster is still very uh, malleable and it's like paint. You, know, you have to be very careful filling it up. People say, well, why can't you just fill it up with a, a fire hose? Well, that would destroy your brand new plaster. So we fill it up wow. with a garden hose. And the one thing we do, and maybe you guys can tell me if we're doing it wrong, but we have the homeowners call the water company because we don't want them to factor in. So if I fill your pool up in June, in the past, their bill was based on a user service fee. They take a couple months out of the year and they average it. Well, you sure as heck don't want it to be the month that you added a 15,000-gallon 15, pool. So we tell them to call the water company, and they would, in the past, you know, eliminate that month from the equation. But even after you do the pool, you're going to lose an inch and a half a week to evaporation. So we have water levelers on almost every pool we do that keep the water level in the pool, you know, at the proper rate. So it, 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 she's no doubt she's right. I mean, it requires a lot of water for a swimming pool. Wow. 
how much does it cost to, to build a pool now? And I'm sure that's <laughs> very wide range, but I mean. Stephanie, that is a question that I answer about 30 times a week. Um, <laughs> and then you're I, prepared. Well, and my best, get, my best answer to people is it's kind of like saying how much is a car or how much is a house. What's interesting in Louisiana, so for example, in Florida, in Florida, they kind of do cookie cutter pools with a, with a, everybody's got a, a, a net around the pool or, you know, a, a screen enclosure. We don't do any of that here. In oh, South Louisiana, the name of the game is custom and very nice and very expensive. Everybody wants hot tubs, you know, laminar lights, um, travertine around the whole pool. So it really, the, the cost, I would tell you a pool, when someone asks me that, I say, well, tell me about your backyard. Is it on a hill? Because if it is, that price is a whole lot different than if it's flat. Mm -hmm. it, do you want a hot tub? A hot tub is a $16,000 ad. You know, do you want vanishing edge? Do you want the, a, a, a travertine or sometimes a nice stone decking costs three times more than a concrete decking? But to give you a ballpark, if you put a gun in my head and said, I want a hot tub and a regular pool, course then i would say how big but in, at the end of the day a nice hot tub and a nice pool in an easy backyard 75 to eighty five thousand. wow yeah so it's quite a quite an quite an investment but, I'm sure but, but having said that when you go yeah, to sell having, your house having said that we do a lot of what we call cocktail pools um tiny little pools for you know the the, the husband and wife who don't have any kids and they're just wanting something artistic in the backyard there's no marco polo there's no they're just <laughs> something nice and and when they get smaller they get cheaper it's concrete and steel the less concrete the less steel less money and, and and i would say the floor is probably 50 we've done a, a plenty of smaller projects for that that range because our ground is so soupy and swampy i guess less so here than say in new orleans but i mean does that make it harder to dig Something that's not going to sink and crack and get all mushed up? Sure. There can be. I mean, there are certain areas where we have to do pilings. Um, we have to do We have to soil samples to, to determine. The, we did one in Riverbend, which, if you know, is very close to the river. And she'll be interested in this. We had to go 13 feet down. He's a scuba diver, and he wanted to go wow. 13 foot. And I was just like, man, I don't, I don't know if we can. I mean, we're going to be digging <laughs> up buckets of water. So we had to develop a system to get, and we, he was, he was really cool and understood. So we developed a sliding scale that we would just get down as far as we can. So everything's based on the water table. And in that particular instance, we were able to get down to 13, but the structural enhancements we had to do to do that were significant. Groundwater is a, it's a big deal. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. I'm talking to Parker Ewing of Ewing Aquatech Pools and Alyssa Dossman of the Water Institute of the Gulf. Alyssa, you had mentioned the Coastal Master Plan, and I know, I, I, thinking back on, on what I've read and written about the Water Institute, you know, y'all's idea is to inform the decisions that the, that the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority makes with respect to policy around good science. Um, what does the science say about our ability to still save the coastline? I mean, is it is it too late? Are we sort of fighting a, a losing game? I mean, or or can we still really reverse things? And 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 I guess that's a two pronged question because when we talk about reversing land loss, 
maybe we could protect, protect enough coast to support wildlife, but not necessarily humans, right? Right. Um, that's a really good question. So typically when they're talking about looking at the coastal master plan, they think of it as a future without, which means a future without action versus a future with action. And um, and so um, and then it, it, it begins to get focused on where are the areas that we can really make a difference in um, conserving and protecting our our coast and the people in our coast. You know, it's one of the reasons why there's a, a, a a lot of focus on um, wetlands and conserving wetlands because they provide both coastal protection, but that they also provide, you know, um, really good habitat for the ecosystem, which then affects the ability for our um, coastal communities who might depend on the fisheries industry and, and other types to, um, to be able to continue over the long term. I, I definitely would never call it a, a losing battle. I think it's going to be a constant struggle um, over o over time and has been. I mean, that's that's not that's not unusual or unheard of. Um, but you know, also everything is looked at based on the risks and uncertainty in decision making, and then also you know what is the cost of building a project versus the cost of inaction, and then really taking those um, those strategic actions and moving forward with restoration projects that provide a benefit to the coast, both from a financial perspective, but then also for, for a human perspective and an ecosystem restoration perspective. Um, but I definitely wouldn't call it a, a losing battle. <laughs> and if, if it is, I think, um, I think it's just something that we're gonna continue uh, to, to, to fight over the long-term because people believe in our coast and our culture and, and the people who live there. Well, right. I mean, it, it, it is the, the South Coast, and there's a whole lot of energy infrastructure down there, too, okay. that yeah. is increasingly floating. But still, still, it needs it needs some land. Um, the major mm -hmm. like sediment diversion projects that are that are underway or in the design, I don't know exactly where they are in the design mm -hmm. and engineering at this stage, maybe early construction. But um, do we think those are going to really make a difference? Um, I think that if they are implemented, they can really make a difference in the areas uh, that they're focused on, um, both from an, an ecosystem restoration perspective, but then also a, um, a protection perspective, right? As far as protecting some of those coastal areas, helping provide some additional protection uh, to the communities, to the human communities that that live inland. Um, and so some of those are in different phases of the uh, regulatory review process in, in engineering and design. Some of the larger ones, some of the smaller ones. Are sort of, yeah. Sure. Parker, I wanted to go back to your degree in Russian. <laughs> what, I love it. what, so what, what made you want to study Russian? Have you ever been able to use it in your professional life or did you go do a, an internship over in Russia, learn about their swimming pools maybe? Oh gosh. That's, what a segue that is. Um, it's a long story, but when I was in college, my, my, my goal, my, my career path, I wanted to work for uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I, was go I went to Washington um, in college and worked there for a little while. And at the time, you know, um, the Soviet Union still existed, the wall was up and, and they were the bad guys. And, um, you know, I, I wish now I would have taken Chinese, but I, after working in Washington um, for a little while, I just decided and was basically told <clears throat> that 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 lifestyle was um, 
a sacrificial one and I knew I was too social and wanted, you know, wife and kids and normal Southern life, I guess, uh, that a life like that would not suit me. And for various reasons, I just decided it wasn't for me. So what did that leave me? It left me with a Russian language, which is a beautiful language. Um, I, no, I have barely used it. Every once in a while, I'll run into someone who has it and I'll say hi to them and it kind of shocks them. And my wife rolls her eyes. Um, and uh, I try to impress my wife with it and it never works. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, um, it's just one of those things, made a career change and uh, never use it. And, and in your career, like, I think it's so interesting to look at swimming pool design, like home design, interior, exterior, whatever, but it's such a change. Like when, when we were kids, you know, every, people that had pools, they, they were basically kind of plain light blue pools, maybe you had a slide or a diving board, you know, mm -hmm. and now they've all got these jeweled coatings <laughs> and pan I and mean, they all look like these very tropical oases. They've gotten so upscale. They have. When I started, it was the same thing almost every time. It was a pump, a motor, a filter, and a light. Mm -hmm. And the pools were relatively the same. And if you had a waterfall, that was pretty fancy. Now it's everything's automated. It's all an app on the phone. Um, the big thing now are the outdoor kitchen spaces. So now yes. it's everybody wants to build, you know, the kitchen with the fireplace and the bathroom. And it's just like everything else. Things have just gotten exponentially more detailed, complicated, and expensive. Yeah, very, very upscale. Are pools good for the environment? Are they good for our natural landscape? Or, or bad or neutral? Does it matter? That's probably above my pay grade. I don't really uh, Alyssa? know. I mean, I, <laughs> Alyssa could probably tell you more. I probably should, Alyssa, I'm, I'm treating all the water with chemicals. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's keeping them safe, right? It's keeping yeah. the people safe that swim in them. And so, um, and uh, so, I don't know, you know, it's interesting that you were bringing that up about the soils. I'm actually, so um, my job at the Water Institute, uh, my background is a ge geology, right, um, is actually what my PhD is in, but I don't do a tremendous amount of geology right now in my current job, although I manage geologists, but I find it interesting that you have, you know, you're like looking at the soils and talking about the water table. And honestly, um, you know, considering um that pools are going in uh to an area that's already built up right where homes and other things are i mean it's not like you're going and putting out pools in the middle in the middle of a wetland restoration area right, right. they're going to, there's already you know construction there's already infrastructure so honestly i don't probably think it makes that much big big a difference um as long as people are taking care of them right and they're not um and hopefully not leaking, you know, contaminants into like a drinking water system. But, you know, the, the drinking water doesn't come from the surficial aquifer areas like in the Baton Rouge area, right? For example, it comes from much deeper into the ground, right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of um, feet deep. So I'm sure in some areas it could be an issue, um, but but not in areas. I no, like it, I've, yeah, so. No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, um, the, as you know from your background, the ground movement, uh, it never loses. And so you have to be very respectful of and, and aware of soil movements and conditions. And there are certain areas in town where I, I, will, I will not, I mean, there are guys who just want to go dig a hole and I won't do it without a full engineered workup. 
Um, it's just the forces in the ground are, are um, monumental, and, and they will tear up a backyard in two seconds. Yes, it makes you wonder, does anybody building levees ever consult swimming pool contractors? Maybe they should. We've actually done, we, we have in the past, they, we've done some consulting. Now, they've asked a lot of times, it doesn't really meet our, we're an in-house company, and so we're kind of focused on pools. A lot of times that's a little bit out of our interests. It, it, it doesn't make sense economically for us to do that. I'd have to, I'd have to pivot with a lot of my resources, and then all of a sudden I've got people waiting eight months for pools and while I'm working on some levy. I just, it's a little bit <laughs> right. out of my league. <laughs> that's so in how many people do y'all have on staff how, how large is your company um, we usually have around 25 26 people uh, a lot of those have been working for us for a long time and we're just a little bit different um for better or worse um in that we're still in-house we're not we're not i think we're the last we're one of the last people left that aren't brokers and, and what i mean by that is a guy just calls and he's just picking the phone and he's trying to find a guy to dig it and he's trying to find a guy to run plumbing mm -hmm. We're still doing it with our people. Um, and so uh, that, that has its challenges. But at the end of the day, it, it allows us to control it. And I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Alyssa, how, how big is the Water Institute now? How many scientists um, do you have? We have uh, uh, 70 people right now working at the Water Institute. And that includes scientists, researchers, as well as like operational staff um, that support. And... Um, we have over 50 full-time and then uh, approximately 20 or a little less uh, part-time, for example, like seniors, senior advisors and senior fellows and, and things like that. So um, we, in um, 2021, we hired 28 people. Um, wow. So we actually, it, you know, it's interesting, the pandemic uh, has been... Um, it, your, the pool business has uh, expanded as well as the Water Institute's um, uh, business as well, which was very surprising to us uh, that we saw that amount of work um, uh, coming in because we we basically work on a reimbursable project basis. So we work with clients, even though we're nonprofit, non-advocacy. Um, I think part of it might be also... Uh, because of the pandemic, we were home um, and not driving as much in, in, in some right. regards. I don't know if it's good or bad. It, a lot of people were able to be more productive because they're not on the road. Um, I'm not sure it's great in the fact that I might have Zoom meetings from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. I don't know <laughs> about that. But so, um, so we've, we've, we've grown a lot. Um, I think the need is there. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, you know, we've, we've had a pretty good um we've had a pretty good time of it of the last year making the boast of a bad time or you know trying to make lemonade out of lemons during a pandemic which sounds like parker's entered into the same thing right it's like oh right. i was we were uh, we are just as surprised as you are parker i think is what i would say yeah yeah Alyssa dawson and parker ewing in a, in a coastal state that gets warmer and wetter every year it's good to know we have experts like you studying hydrology, coming up with solutions to our problems, and keeping us cool and entertained. It's been delightful visiting with y'all and hearing your insights and observations about the industry and about the state of our, our climate and coast. So thank you so much for joining me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. 
My guests today on Out to Lunch have been Alyssa Dosman of the Water Institute of the Gulf and Parker Ewing of Ewing Aquatech Pools. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on WRKF. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about the Water Institute of the Gulf and Ewing Aquatech Pools by listening to the Out to Lunch Baton Rouge podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch Baton Rouge podcast on your podcast app and on our website, it's batonrouge.la. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsbatonrouge.la and on our Out to Lunch Baton Rouge social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Today's conditions conspired to compel us to record Out to Lunch Baton Rouge on Zoom. But next week, we'll be back at our regular lunch spot, Mansur's on the Boulevard. Mansur's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week with brunch on Sunday. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsbatonrouge.la and WRKF 89.3 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Peter Raschuti, and our Baton Rouge business consultants are Charlie D'Agostino and Ann Edelman. I'm Stephanie Regal. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you around the table at Mansur's again next week for more business Baton Rouge style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.